there's a clear public interest in the material. It went directly to Alado's reporting, and we're just talking about one record. And therefore, the delay, you know, made it rise to the need of, of litigation. You ask a government official if their agency has a specific document. He says, yes, they do. You then make a formal request for that document, but the agency fails to meet the deadline for responding. What do you do next? If your answer is to sue, then you're in agreement with our podcast guest. I'm Michael O'Connell, and this is It's All Journalism. Victoria Baronetsky is something of a press freedom warrior. She was previously a First Amendment fellow at the New York Times, the first West Coast member of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press as their First Look Fellow, and she's currently a research fellow at the Tild Center for Digital Journalism. Victoria is also the general counsel for the Center for Investigative Reporting. In that role, she represents CIR's excellent radio show and podcast, Reveal, as well as their documentaries and online site. Welcome to the podcast, Victoria. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So first, what, you know, you sound like you've been, you've been at this, this, uh, you know, freedom of the press, uh, uh, transparency, government transparency thing for a while. What, what first got you interested in this? It's actually really funny. I went home recently and my mom found like a card from second grade and it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wrote very (laughs) astutely, a lawyer. So apparently I knew somewhere in the back of my head, uh, I think it was just because I liked the show Matlock. But um, when I got to college, I sort of had some inclination by that time, even that I wanted to be a lawyer. And I took a First Amendment class with Lisey Bollinger. And I just kind of fell in love with it. And from there, I ended up enrolling in journalism school right after. And one thing led to another. I did a master's in philosophy I was going to do a PhD in political theory on free speech theory. And sort of one thing, it was just sort of one step after another, sort of finding myself continuously interested in questions around speech, the media, truth and transparency. All four of my grandparents actually were, you know, fled from the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. And I think that's sort of deep in my blood that commitment to transparency and accountability, government accountability. So you were interested in being a lawyer too, but maybe not a a free press transparency, government transparency lawyer per se at that age, but that's something that, that you kind of grew into is following that path. So the reason I reach out to you is I saw that recently Reveal announced that it was suing ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Can you tell me about that? Why, why did Reveal take that step? Yeah, so this is something that's actually pretty matter of course for media attorneys at various news institutions. When there are documents that a reporter is looking for that is central to their story, and the government somehow does not comport with the FOIA statute, there are procedural steps made where you can file a lawsuit. And the basics of what happened here were that ICE you know, a request was made to ICE. ICE didn't respond. It actually closed the request. And then the reporter resubmitted the request with even more information to make it even more specific. And ICE, again, did not then just completely did not respond to the request. And, you know, 20 days had passed. And just to be clear, at that point, ICE isn't required to disclose the records. They merely have to provide a determination. So they just have to say, you know, we have the records and we'll disclose them to you. This is what they are. Or that, you know, 
they're withholding them. But here we got no determination. And so given their importance to the reporter, we decided to file a lawsuit. So what was the story that the reporter was investigating? So this is a reporter whose name is Aura Bogado, and she's been a longtime immigration reporter, quite well known in her field. And she has written several stories, one of particular mention recently where she wrote about MVM, which is a federal contractor, which has worked with various agencies, federal agencies, to do you know various types of work. But she found out that ICE uh, and MVM had contracted to assist with the transport of children. And uh, the MVM was actually holding kids at a specific uh, location. Um, and in that reporting, you know, Auda was very interested in seeing the contract between MVM and ICE because there it would hopefully disclose what are some of the obligations that MVM has to ICE. Um, and when, you know, you're, you're taking on the government role or an extension of the government role in taking care of immigrant children, it's important to see what standards of care the government is requiring you to hold. And sort of as an interesting aside, I think that this is, you know, a growing trend that I think media attorneys have been seeing in general where more actions of the government have been contracted out to private contractors. And so being able to obtain this kind of information is really important um, as, you know, a form of government accountability, despite it being done through the hands of private contractors. And the contracts generally are something that you're able to get access to? We actually have had several cases involving contracts, um, involving other related agencies. For example, we just had a litigation that we've been doing against ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and several others. And, uh, you know, contracts are pretty standard course to be disclosed. If I'm correct, I think even in this case, MVM's prior contracts with the government have also previously been disclosed in other, con- in other contexts. So they, ICE is giving you no indication as to why they are not responding to you? Because I guess – I just want to make sure I understand. They're obligated to not necessarily give you the document but explain to you why that they're not giving it to you. Is that correct? So under the statute, the agency has 20 days to issue a determination. It could also ask for an extension, which adds usually another 10 days or so. But the – the determination simply requires not a disclosure of records, right? Because that would be a really high bar, but simply a letter or some kind of communication saying that they conducted a search and they do have records or they don't have records. And if they're withholding them, reasons for withholding. You know, there's certain reasons within the statute that allows them to withhold them. Obviously, something that's classified, they might hold. They might hold. But one would think that this would not necessarily be something that would classify it. So is there any indication as to why they're withholding it? To be clear, in this instance, ICE has not not said that they are withholding it. They did not respond to – so FOIA permits for a plaintiff to sue just because ICE hasn't disclosed or given a determination. So here ICE did not give a determination, so we don't know – you know, we have not heard officially from them – whether the records exist or whether they do exist and whether they're withholding them. What was interesting about this case is that 
Auda had previously discussed with the agency, she had actually gone to the agency, asked them for these records. They said that she would have to formally submit a FOIA request for them. But they, the agent actually did say that they had them in their possession um, and that she had to go through the FOIA process. So, you know, to get to your answer, I don't know. We actually don't know yet whether ICE will be finding reason for withholding under one of the nine exemptions that you mentioned, right? So your lawsuit is really kind of a you're, – you're poking them. You're prodding them a little bit and say, hey, you, you didn't meet this deadline. Please – you know, answer our question. Do you have these documents? But you see, you, you know, your reporters seem to believe that those, that they do have those documents. That's always a great thing when you're doing a, a, a FOIA request is if you know that there are specific documents uh, to go after. And one would think the government is involved with a contractor here. One would think there would be a paper trail, that there would be a contract somewhere to look at. Oh, yeah. Uh, one would hope. This is a very so, typical circumstance of a record existing. And so it was no surprise when the agency confirmed to Auda that the record existed. So that's why it was sort of surprising after she made an informal request for it that they didn't just give it because these types of documents are often disclosed. Um, not only are they in existence, but they're often disclosed, right? And she asked MBM for the contract. They did not give it to her. ICE did not give it to her. And so, therefore, she went through the formal process of FOIA, and they did not answer her request for a simple, you know, this isn't like other FOIA circumstances where, you know, it might make more sense in other cases where you ask for all emails from, you know, 2018 to 2019 involving this specific topic. But here, you know, it's a very, very focused, laser-focused request. There's one document we're talking about, very clearly exists, and therefore disclosure would be, and a sort of quick disclosure, if not obviously a determination within 20 days, is a very reasonable matter. Um, I'll just add that, you know, lawsuits like this, they absolutely are a lot of work and they're costly. And so they're not something that we take lightly. Um, this was a circumstance where there's a clear public interest in the material. It went directly to Auto's reporting and we're just talking about one record and therefore the delay, um, you know, made it rise to the need of, of litigation. Yeah. And, and this is not like you're on a fishing expedition that, you know, as you, as you sort of said, you know, I want all of the, you know, emails from 2016 that, you know, because you suspect that there's something in there, you, you know, you have <laughs> reason to believe that that document is there. You have sort of a confirmation from the reporters reporting that that document is there. So <laughs> it would be nice if they could at least tell you if it's something that you're going to be able to, to get a copy on. Is this sort of a typical exchange in the FOIA process? Does this happen a lot? Yeah. You know, I think, there has been a, a very long history of conversations about the delayed in FOIA. In fact, in 2015, there were congressional hearings and then amendments made to FOIA given the pretty substantial delays that had begun to occur within the agencies. Um, delays like this are not uncommon, and I think ICE is perhaps one of the best-known agencies for delay and difficulty with FOIA requests, to put it uh cleanly. You know, so I don't think it's uncommon. I do think it is true that especially even since the Trump administration, there is 
pretty obvious acknowledgement that FOIA requests have increased in number and there are backlogs, right? So that's a very understandable thing and an unfortunate, you know, that, that is a burden upon the government, but one that's important to transparency um, and fulfilling it is important to transparency. And moreover, like you said, you know, delays with these types of requests are a little bit more surprising, right? So when there's a delay like this, where you have one record at issue, high likelihood chance that it exists, if not full confirmation that it exists. And in fact, it would be meaningful to know even if it doesn't exist in this circumstance. So in that type of case, it's a little bit more surprising if there isn't isn't, uh, the release of information. So, you know, we're we're over two years here in the in the Trump administration. Do you have a sense of, of how they how they fare uh, transparency wise, FOIA wise compared to other administrations? Yeah, it's interesting. I've talked about this with, you know, various press advocates and other media attorneys. And, you know, truth be told, I think that it's rather similar. I know it's a little bit disappointing for some to hear, but that's the truth. You know, I think that the release of information is is somewhat similar. There are some things I think to note, which is obviously the takedown of information on various government sites. Um, that's a little bit, that's certainly not normal course. There have been some changes to agency policies, uh, for example, under the Department of Interior to make disclosure more difficult. That's a little bit out of the norm. And then the other thing that, you know, this is just observationally anecdotal from me. Um, I think that there are certain kinds of exemptions that we've seen more of and reasons for withholding. I think we've seen an increase in Glomar responses and also an increase in trade secret exemptions under Exemption 4. And I think that goes to what I was speaking about before, which is there is more contracting with private parties by the federal government, and a large amount of material is just being now swept under exemption four, from what I've observed. So, and Glomar is, and yeah, t- sorry about that. So, Glom- Glomar is a judicially created rule. It was created in a case from the 1970s involving a, a ship that sank to the bottom of the ocean called the USS Glomar. Um, And in that case, the CIA was sued for records and it gave the gave the response that had never before been used, which is now called the Glomar response, where the agency said it could neither confirm nor deny that the records even exist. And for a long time, the Glomar response was just used within the context of national security over the past, you know, 20, you know, 30, 40 years. It's been increasingly used in all different contexts. There was a really big spike that occurred after 9-11, and you can imagine in the national security context, but then it started flooding also um, into state freedom of information laws being used in that context, and then in all sorts of in all sorts of areas that don't touch even national security. So if I can give you an example where we had a recent request for records involving records from the U.S. Department of Treasury. And they gave us back a Glomar response, you know, and and I can say that the records did not have to do with national security and still the Department of Treasury found that a Glomar response was somehow appropriate. There are some recourse options available where you could appeal those things. Yeah, absolutely. So all the types of exemption for Glomar, all of these that I just spoke to, 
you know, you can either go through an administrative appeals process and sometimes the agency will come back and say, you know, they agree with you that there can, a disclosure can happen. Or alternatively, you can go through the route that we're doing right now, which is you can go file a lawsuit in federal court and then brief the issue before a judge who can then determine whether disclosure is appropriate under the one of the reasons for withholding or not. Within the Glomar context, especially if a record has been acknowledged, publicly acknowledged, then Glomar has found not to be appropriate. It was actually a recent case litigated by the Reporters Committee where the court found that because the records had been previously acknowledged, publicly acknowledged, that Glomar wasn't an appropriate response. So why is it important for reporters and news outlets to to challenge um, the government in situations like this? I think, you know, I think that there are a variety of things, but really the thrust, you know, behind these FOIA litigations is the ability to understand how federal government, how the government's working. It's a real basic need for transparency to have government accountability. You know, FOIA was created during the height of the Cold War when there were serious concerns about government secrecy. And that's what the statute was born out of, a a type of skepticism that's important to democracy. And, you know, a lot of people say that the First Amendment is you know, about freedom of speech. That's what we all colloquially think it's about. But in fact, you know, many scholars have mentioned that transparency is kind of the primary right under the First Amendment because it gives us the stepping stool from which we can further make any assertions and say things meaningfully. So, yeah, you know, I think it's important for reporters to challenge us because they're doing their job through it that method. They're, they're gaining more information. They're trying to get to the black and white paper recorded knowledge that the government is sharing internally and, and let it be publicly known. So what do you see are some of the biggest challenges facing journalists right now regarding transparency and press freedom? Oh, goodness. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know this is a short interview. Uh, Give give me what you can. To name all the problems in the media would be a very long laundry list. But um, which are the ones that concern you most? How about that? The ones that concern me, I I think that there are kind of there are two that are sort of on the forefront of my mind, or or I'll say three. You know, I think this is you know less within the legal realm, but I think reporters have a really difficult time today. They're absolutely helped by technology, but they're also hindered by it. And more frequently, they are having trouble, I think, working in a safe way with their sources and amongst themselves through various electronic forms of surveillance and, you know, tracking. And and media attorneys are concerned with that because, you know, in prior years, you know, if, if somebody wanted access to a reporter's information, they would simply go to a newsroom and ask for a subpoena. And today there are various mechanisms through which, you know, outside threats and government bodies can just go and, you know, look at technology or other formats. So, so that's one. I think another one is, you know, this is again anecdotal, but I think we've really seen a rise of litigation against news industries. So, you know, there have been several against the New York Times this year. Reveal is actually defending a lawsuit involving defamation 
Mother Jones had one recently, various institutions sort of having to deal with the threat of litigation, which is costly and frankly used as a form of intimidation, which is why we have anti-slap laws around the country to to make press freedom more buttressed. But it's it's definitely something that sort of sits at the back of any media attorney's mind. And then the last, I think the last challenge is something I I echoed earlier, which is that I think that, you know, there's more and more information is being made in today's day and world, right? There's no, it's no secret that data is king and that information is everything. And so as these exemptions grow under FOIA, it's concerning. And right now before the Supreme Court, there is actually a case that's for the first time um, determining the boundaries of Exemption 4, which um, contains with it the exemption for trade secrets and confidential business information. And, you know, that case will have a huge uh, impact on what type of information can be disclosed, and particularly where there are federal contractors involved. And given that there's a growing body of federal contractors and data is so important, it's really important that the Supreme Court, you know, err on the side of transparency, which is, um, by the way, like, a, I mean, obvious probably, but it's a it's a nonpartisan issue, right? Transparency affects all. Um, and so that's why it's especially important. Nonpartisan issue, uh, but whether, do you think there's enough support in, in Congress these days? to sort of move transparency, move toward more transparency? I am not a, a Congress aficionado, so I do not know the number. <laughs> That's okay. And I do know that passing, you know, the FOIA amendments last time was a huge lift. But, you know, historically, I will say that every time that there has been a, a contention with FOIA, Congress has always followed with, generally followed with, um, an interest in supporting it and strengthening it. So, I mean, even the way that FOIA was initially passed, I believe it was vetoed and then Congress passed it over the veto. And throughout its history, the amendments have been added despite consternation from agencies. In the last passage in 2015, there were various members of um, Congress that were getting emails and communications from various agencies and asking them, you know, not to pass the amendment. And it still went through. You know, I I think that there's a good chance that there's an understanding that transparency is important and primary. So now I see in your bio that you're a research fellow at the Tau Center. Is there anything that you're particularly working on for them now? Well, I actually just finished up a huge project for them. I uh, wrote a, it took a, a It was a year-long project where I wrote a paper involving um, changes in, you know, digital, in our digital information world and how they affect media law. And so the various ways that the increase in data and importance of data has shifted and, you know, changed or will probably end up leading to changes within media law. Oh, interesting. So I'll be interested. Do you have any idea when that's going to be uh, published? Oh, it's it's already published and it's out. Oh. Um, yeah, it, it, we actually had a launch for it in in January at Columbia. There was a it was like a two panels um, 
Jason Leopold. Sorry, I just blanked. Jason Leopold. Jason Leopold. From BuzzFeed was there. We had an interview with him. And then there was another panel on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act with various esteemed folks from, you know, the Knight Institute, ACLU, and a reporter who's worked with ProPublica and other outlets. So it was a really great conversation. And yeah, the, the paper was is out and published. I'm happy to share a copy with you. Cool. Yeah. Jason Leopold, he was on our podcast. He's a, he's a huge FOIA guy. Uh, I like to, I'd like to follow the work that he's, he's doing. So what's the, what's the next step for the the lawsuit? You know, obviously you file a lawsuit, you're expecting some sort of response. Is, is there a timetable on this? Yeah. So um, interestingly, the government actually asked for an extension for its answer in this case. And they asked for 30 days as an accommodate, you know, to be accommodating and understanding. We, we offered them not a 30 day extension, but, you know, um, somewhere in between there. I think it was, you know, a few, a few less days than that. And um, we are waiting for an answer and hopefully a subsequent call from the agency saying that they're willing to disclose the records and production. But we will see what, you know, what happens. Well, definitely good luck with that. Victoria, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for keeping the government honest, <laughs> or at least in the direction of being honest. Thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. I, I just do I just do what I can to help the reporters. But um, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website... Why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.